0: Welcome to the Tamarin Learning Podcast, where host Dr. Kirby Ross Plock speaks with experts on many topics relevant in the ultra high net worth family wealth management space. Kirby is author of several books, including The Complete Family Office Handbook, and shares her expertise consulting with families and family offices. Kirby is also the founder of Tamarin Learning, an online wealth education platform that develops practical, foundational learning programs for beneficiaries to help them prepare for responsible stewardship of wealth.
1: Welcome to the Tamarin Learning Podcast. My name is Kirby Rossblock and I'm your host today. Today we are with Miles Paget. Miles is a partner at Kazusko, Harris, and Duncan a law firm in Washington, D.C., and Miles specializes in family office, affluent families, private trust companies, and working with his clients on a multitude of complex estate planning trusts and tax considerations. So we're thrilled to have Miles here today to talk about Chapter 15, which he co-authored with his peer, Don Kazusko, which focuses all on private trust companies. So we're thrilled to have you here, Miles. Thanks for joining us.
0: My pleasure, thanks Thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, it's nice to be with you today. True.
1: Private Trust Companies was a chapter that we added to the second edition of the Complete Family Office Handbook. And you are the expert along with Dawn. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the chapter. It's entitled Private Trust Companies Creating the ideal trustee. Can you tell us more about the PTC and how it can be an ideal trustee?
0: So, you know, in contrast with the other forms of trusteeships, which we'll probably talk about in a little bit, uh, you know, the, the PTC really is ideally situated to help beneficiaries with their development, unlike you know, all these other all these other trusteeship structures. Um you know and i think i certainly start from and i think my colleagues start from you know a place where you know we don't believe that the purpose of a family's wealth is merely to support a lifestyle right support spending uh in fact it you know it's there for much more than that because i think that in in the last 20 years at least there's been a lot of research I think people know this, what I'm going to say intuitively, but there's been a lot of research for the past 20 years that um, the marginal utility of an extra dollar in terms of one's happiness declines rapidly after you reach a certain amount, and that amount is surprisingly low, right? Um, so there were some books I remember reading, I don't know, 15-something years ago, uh one is a guy named Richard, Richard Laird, who's a British economist, and the other one is um, Daniel Gilbert, and I probably have a handful of others on my shelf, but I do remember these two. And you know, they articulated something that you know, was very you know profound for me at the time, which was above about seventy thousand dollars or so, sixty to seventy thousand dollars in a in a Western country. The marginal utility of each additional dollar of income in terms of one's happiness is extremely low. So, you know, when you when you start asking the question of well, what is all this wealth for, it's got to be for more than just spending, you know, lifestyle maintenance. Because anybody could go out and earn enough money, you know, within reason to be happy with the lifestyle they have. So there's there's got to be more purpose to it than that. Um, And I actually think that the but the purpose of accumulated wealth is to help family members um, identify. You know, average people do this, but I think the path is harder. Um, but so the, the the wealth that's accumulated by these families is, you know, really at its best use um, to help these family members identify their values and really achieve their personal aspirations.
1: Tell us more in that vein, maybe, Miles. why a private trust company is this ideal trustee. I mean, how does it differ? You mentioned some of the different other fiduciary options, corporate or commercial trustee or an individual trustee. Maybe you could just roll back the tape and give us more about what is a private trust company and how is it different?
0: Well, um, fair enough. But Before I go down that path, though... Um, the you know, I, I, think, I think we have to recognize that the role of the trustee and the functioning of a trust is really well suited to helping beneficiaries, you know, identify those values and seek their aspirations through the distribution function, right? There's somebody in, a, in any trust structure, whether the trustee is an individual, a corporate trustee, or a private trust company, there's somebody who is making a decision about when a beneficiary gets money, for what purpose, and how much. So, that process, if done well, really lends itself to helping beneficiaries achieve, you know, helping them identify what their values are, what their aspirations are, and helping them craft a path to achieving them, all through the distribution function at its best, when the trustee is a mentor and, you know, something of a life coach, I guess, personal coach, all those, those things happen, right? Through the asking questions about what are your goals in the next several years? You know, how do you plan to get there? Um, Things like that. Uh, The, in the other structures, so the reason why Don and I titled the article the way they did, which is that it's the ideal trustee. And the other structures doing that is extremely difficult. So the other structures, you know, the alternatives are things like, you know, it's a traditional corporate trustee or, you know, the traditional individual trustee, you know, the plain old, you know, Uncle Joe. Uh, And then, you know, over the last 25 years or so, there's been the sort of the directed trust structure that, that's come about in states like um, the the states with the best laws now all have it, but um, you know originally in Delaware. Um, so you know if you if you think about the distribution function and how it can go from simply historically, sorry, I'm back backtracking that, a bit, but historically, a traditional trustee would get a request from a beneficiary. A reason for why the beneficiary wants the money, and the trustee would make the decision, and maybe there would be a discussion there, but I mean that was that's pretty much the process, and the trustees would spend most of their effort on administrative stuff and particularly investments um but not so much effort on beneficiary development no no really robust process around distributions and what are they for, and how can we plan ahead for you know the goals you have five years from now, and such, um, you know, and there are various reasons for that in the corporate trustee context, you know the traditional corporate trustee context, it's just very expensive to do that. I mean it takes a lot of resources, both in time, you know human time plus hard hard dollars to pay for the staff. Um, in the individual context it was it was hard to accomplish because as you can imagine the people who are good at that are folks with high emotional intelligence you know and there are just very few of those if you had an individual trustee they would have to be almost the equivalent of like the philosopher king to be able to do all the things one has to do to run a trust well plus do the distribution function well you know those those people are just you know they exist but they're they're rare um and in the in the directed trust structure, you can accomplish a robust distribution function pretty well, but not at scale. And by not at scale, I mean so, yeah, I, I have various issues with directed trusts, but in relation to the distribution function, um, you know, if you a directed trustee is well suited to a family who has two or three or maybe even six trusts, you know, large trusts. If they have 100 trusts or 150 trusts, it's extremely difficult just just due to scale to go through that process with the beneficiaries, you know, in that many trusts. Um, it's easier to do in a private trust company. Um, you know, and I have other issues with directed trusts, like, you know, most of them are legal, which is things like um, which state has jurisdiction over the activities of those parties, right? So if you have, you know, a typical directed trust is an administrative trustee, situs in a state, uh, it's a distribution committee, and it's an investment advisor. So you have three fiduciaries, right? I mean, they truly are fiduciaries, and they're the equivalent of co-trustees all over the place. Right, so I, you know, I, I query, you know, where is the trust located for purposes of applying a particular law to an issue, or um, for allowing a jurisdiction to subject a trust to tax, or for getting venue over um, over a fiduciary in litigation, that sort of stuff. So you know, I have lots of concerns about directed trusts that you know. Don't really involve the distribution function, but i I think you know for my purposes the um, the PTC allows for you know of all the alternatives out there the PTC is the most uh, robust for delivering a um, a high quality distribution function um, So
1: miles, do you think we can return to the question and just define it because I feel like we covered now, we jumped into directed trusts and trustees roles. And tell us more about how that PTC is set up or designed to, to fulfill that fiduciary duty, but also that distribution function better, right? That's what I heard you say.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a typical private trust company looks like you know what you would see in a in a commercial trust company, which is you know it's an entity. So there's an entity wrapper. Um, there is a board of directors, you know, whose job is like in any corporation to you know see that the corporation's you know pursuing the strategy that it should, and that you know, and they provide sufficient oversight to to do that. Um, then there are committees that have various functions. Um, you know, there would be a committee for investments. There would be a committee for making sure that the fiduciary functions are being um, accomplished appropriately. There would be an audit committee. Uh, And then in the PTC world, there's a new there's another committee which is designed to make tax sensitive decisions called the, you know, in many cases the discretionary decisions committee. The discretionary decisions committee in a PTC can be staffed with whatever type of people that the family wants to see in that role and the resources allocated to that committee can be set at whatever level the family considers appropriate. So unlike say, for example, in a, in a commercial trustee context, you know, there's, there's no, there's no bottom line that has to be, that has to be met in terms of how much can we spend on this, on this person. I mean, that gets set by the family in general. Um, For certain clients, it could be um, for for certain trusts and certain beneficiaries. It could be at a, at one level. And for others, it could be at a much higher level, you know? So that's, that sort of um, bespoke nature is very difficult to get in a, in a different context.
1: Got it. What are the mechanical hurdles of setting up a, PTC is. Is there some best practices to successfully implementing them?
0: When I think about the the impediments, if you will, of setting up or implementing a, a private trust company, um, the the ones that come to mind really are in the setup process. The you know what I see is that families oftentimes struggle with determining who can control the trust company and how votes are executed, you know, who who controls it and what's the mechanism. Um, and that's because there are, you know, a variety of choices and you have to fit those choices into, you know, whatever the family dynamics are. So for example, um, You know, you can have, you know, a per capita vote where everyone in the in the family gets to vote. And then you're there's a premise there that, you know, we get to define who family is, you know, and that's and that's an exercise. Uh, It can be by branch. But again, you have to decide who amongst the branch gets to say, you know, gets to have a seat at the table. Um, That process can take a very long time, you know, and can be expensive, you know, just with lawyer time and, you know, the soft dollar costs on the client side um, if, you know, if not managed very carefully. So that's, that's one impediment. Um, Another is that most families have a very limited cast of characters, right? So there aren't that many people in the room to choose from to um, fulfill certain roles you know, needed in the trust company. There's often, you know, if it's a family business, you know, if the trust company is associated with the family business, um, there's often the people who are involved in the business and they have a particular skill set. And oftentimes that skill set is really designed towards um, investments, admin, you know, administrative tasks, taxes, that sort of thing, but not necessarily the distribution side. You know, as I said earlier, the distribution function, you know, that's Done very done well, that's a rare human um, you know so so the cast of characters, I think, for many families is something of an impediment is that you know they just don't have enough people to choose from, or they want to use one person for many roles, and that you know is a burden on that person relative to what their other duties are the um you know once once the entity is created. The work of institutionalizing all the trusts that are going to be clients of that trust company uh, it can be large. Mm-hmm. Um, you know so you go from having you know typically um, pretty good process to having excellent process, and that leap is you know that's a tough leap to make for people. So for example, every trust has to have an IPS. You know, some articulation of what the long-term investment strategy for a trust is. Um, and that needs to be – everyone. every trust needs to be in the – you know, needs to have one in the file. Uh, there needs to be a robust data sheet for the various, you know, sort of natures of a trust. You know, is it GST exempt? Is it a grantor trust where the income is taxed to the grantor? You know, which state does – The trust have to file an income tax return in if it's its own taxpayer, you know, that sort of thing. Um, Most clients that I see don't have yet a, you know, a robust data system for their trust. So they go from having an okay data system to having, you know, a robust data system. And, you know, that's a lot of work and it's it's a big leap. So that's another impediment in the early implementation of a of a trust company. And I, you know, and I think as we've touched on numerous times in this discussion. I mean, working with beneficiaries, it's difficult to scale, you know, so they have to figure out some way to, you know, it's different with each family. So they have to figure out a way to scale the human resources to meet the needs of all these beneficiaries. And if you do it well, that's a big commitment. Um, so, you know, that's, that's something else of, a, of an impediment to the getting your trust company from turning the lights on to operating well.
1: How do you see families setting up trust companies set those early priorities? I mean, what what does success look like when you're in that formative stage and prioritizing the key objectives for that PTC? Well, I think that, you know, so
0: let
1: me, let me answer that by maybe answering
0: a different question, which is, you know, if... If the family has decided to pursue a private trust company, you know, they've gone through the process and they've, you know, they finally reached the point where they say, yes, we, we want one or we need one. Um, Then I think, you know, if I were, if I were internally in charge of making that happen, um, you know, the, the priorities list would be. You know we need to we need to make decisions and articulate what the family governance is going to be. you know who gets to who gets to participate and how you know, this is what we were talking about a little earlier. Um, there is you know there is a long lead time and much work that has to happen in actually transitioning a trust from where it is prior to the private trust company into the trusteeship you know of the private trust company. Um, you know, that, that's a, that's a longer process than most people think. So that's a, that's an early priority item. So, cause it's a long lead term item. Um, and that can be, you know, it, it usually includes the identifying problematic trusts. You know, is there going to be a problem from moving from, you know, trustee number one to the private trust company? Many trusts don't allow that. Um, so you have to go in and get them revised or remodeled somehow and you know those are usually a project with a capital P you have to change the law governing administration because presumably you've located your private trust company in a jurisdiction that has good laws for you better than where the family is now so you have to move you know you have to change the law governing the trust today to the law governing you know the administration going forward once the private trust company becomes um, becomes trustee. And that often requires, you know, like a notice process. And if somebody objects, you have to deal with the objection and, and all that, you know, and there's, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, typically notice requirements for changing trustees. So that's in terms of setting priorities, you know, if I were thinking of this as a project manager, you know, sort of maybe the, the second one is, you know, let's, Let's map out how we're going to do the trustee transition and all the elements that have to happen to do that. Um, the third is, as I, you know, as I alluded to earlier, is have to start early on building a robust file system for all the trusts that the family, you know, that the private trust company is going to be trustee for. Um, that may sound, sound, you know, pretty mundane, uh, but it's a fair amount of work, and you know when the trust company steps into the trusteeship, there are going to be so many things that have to be dealt with by the people, you know, staffing the trust company that they, they can't spend time, you know, getting the files in order, right. That has to happen prior to turning the lights on because otherwise it's a, it's, you know, euphemistically a bit chaotic. And, you know, I think they, you know, another, another lead, lead time item is you know you have to you have to have a plan for how you're going to work with the beneficiaries and develop those relationships with them you know that that should start as early as you can
1: yeah well it's definitely not something to set up if you're going to wind it down right in five or ten years right so you emphasize in the chapter about how this is really part of a long-range planning um, consideration for affluent families where values such as multi-generational wealth um, perpetuation and transfer are core, right, to sort of how a family sees sustaining, maintaining, legacy. Um, Any closing thoughts on the role of the PTC and possibly maybe some of the, you know, criteria that might trigger our families to say, oh, maybe we're not great candidates. Maybe this isn't for us.
0: Yeah, a couple of things. So I, I think there is a um, there is a net worth criteria, you know, sort of assets under management criteria. So, I mean, it's very clear to me that, you know, one of the reasons why a family would do a private trust com- would pursue a private trust company is to take command of the services being provided to them. Um, and when you think about that, you know, you realize pretty quickly that it's more expensive to run a private trust company than it is to go hire, you know, a commercial trust company. Um, but the, the product I think is superior because you can control exactly what services you want to provide and how you want to provide it. Um, because it's more expensive you know of course the the setup costs money um the capital required you know is is not immaterial um there are annual costs you know just for having an entity having something that has insurance that sort of stuff in addition to building out the staff you know, the functionality, you know, the services you're going to provide to all the beneficiaries in the family. um, When you take all those things into consideration, I mean, it's it's very expensive relative to a corporate trustee. uh, But the I think the end result is superior. But if if you're only going to have it for 10 years and then you're going to wind it down, I just forget it. But it also requires a base of of wealth, you know, under which it doesn't make any sense to incur all those costs, and so you know I think that I think the yardstick really is five hundred million and up. Is you know is achievable without too much friction. Um, a billion is sort of falling off a log, right? You know the the, ex, the annual expense related to a billion dollars in assets under you know under the trusteeship you know makes it like falling off a log. Um, under five hundred million, I don't think I'd do it unless there was some extremely cogent, idiosyncratic reason to do it. Um, but otherwise you know, that would be the that would be the wealth level. Um, when when a family embarks on this process, the they have to have a material commitment to to process, as I think we mentioned in the article, I mean, there's a trustee is liable not for a bad result, they're liable. They're liable for bad process. So you have to be process oriented. Um, Not as bad as, you know, a 19th century British bureaucrat, but, you know, it's heavy process. So if you have people who can't tolerate process, well, you know, if those are the people in charge, well, then, you know, a private trust company is probably not for them. Right. And I, I guess the other you, you, you know, the, you asked a question earlier about you know what's a, what is a measure of success. You know, that's difficult to it, it's difficult. Well, relatively easy to articulate, difficult to actually prove. Um, you know, I would say that you know these things are in place when I and by these things I mean trusts are in place to make the beneficiaries' lives better. I mean. Yes, many people created them to save taxes, but you know that's you know that's not the major driver. I mean, they're there to make the beneficiaries' lives better. So, your measure of success is: do the beneficiaries perceive the trust company as making their lives better? Do they ascribe value to it, or do or are they questioning the value of it? You know, routinely.
1: Well, I can also imagine that it might reflect in the harmony of the family that if you know you you see family conflict mitigated if you see the ability to have greater transparency and um more fruitful relationships manifest i mean a lot of a lot of money doesn't always enhance right the um togetherness and affinity of a family and sometimes really good governance which a private trust company can Customized right to a family can dramatically move the needle in building harmony and um, happy relationships that may otherwise not be as easy. Particularly if you have a lot of family member trustees who now are in sticky situations and asked to opine on nieces and nephews and extended right. family.
0: Right No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you sort of hit hit the nail on the head, so to speak. I mean, if the trust is if the trust and the PTC are are helping to make the beneficiaries' lives better, I mean, I, I think what that means is it's helping me to identify what my values are. You know, it's helping me to craft a path to achieving, you know, to living pursuant to those values and achieving my aspirations and having deeper relationships with you know the people around me i'm not everybody obviously so yeah no i I think that's right i think when it's done well it can really help those people live you know sort of happier more robust lives with less conflict
1: well this has been amazing i'm so thankful for your sharing and insight obviously you are one of the few top experts in the private trust company community. And we're lucky to have you. Um, Your chapter is connected to this podcast. And we look forward to hearing more from you. I mean, obviously, we have a lot of um, changes potentially on the horizon with estate planning and tax considerations. So Miles, thank you so much for joining us here on the Tamron Learning Podcast today.
0: My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me.